The following episode of Lyrics of Their Life podcast deals with serious issues such as drug references, sexual references and violence that may be distressing to some listeners. It is not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode we'll be exploring the life and music of Marshall Mavers III, aka Eminem. Known today as a pioneer and trailblazer of the hip-hop industry, Eminem has paved the way for white rappers to break into a genre dominated by African-American rappers and has earned the respect of some of the biggest names in the game, as well as also managing to piss many of them off along the way. In this episode, we'll explore Eminem's tormented life as he faced many challenges along the way, such as his near-death experience at the hands of a schoolyard bully, further deadly experiences through his struggles with alcohol and drug addiction, his well-publicised spats with his wife Kim and mother Debbie that often resulted in tragic outcomes such as court appearances. While Eminem deals with the loss of some close friends along the way as the rap game at times turned ugly, and the countless other crazy moments and experiences in Eminem's life so far. Through all of this, we delve into how Eminem came to be, standing in front of thousands of screaming fans, sharing these stories with like-minded individuals who have also struggled in their lives. We assess Eminem's witty, aggressive, humorous, controversial and honest detailing of his life experiences through his lyrics, which has seen him become the self-professed rap god, as he is known today as one of the best-selling artists on the planet. While some argue that Eminem went too pop or mainstream, many still claim that Eminem might well be the greatest hip-hop artist of all time. Arguably, this is the most craziest and action-packed story covered on the podcast so far, so strap yourselves in for one hell of a ride. This is the story of Eminem. This is Lyrics of Their Life. Eminem was born Marshall Bruce Mavers III on the 17th of October 1972 in St. Joseph, Missouri in the United States of America. Marshall's parents were his father Marshall Bruce Mavers II, commonly known as Bruce, who of course he was named after, and his mother Deborah Ray Nelson, also known commonly as Debbie. When giving birth to Marshall, it's believed that Debbie, who was just 17 years old at the time, almost died during childbirth and was in labour for a total of 72 to 73 hours. Before Marshall had arrived, Bruce and Debbie both played together in a band called Daddy Warbucks 
where they would travel to Ramada in hotels along the North and South Dakota and Montana borders. Debbie and Bruce first met in the late 60s, as Bruce was quite a quiet boy that lived on the same block in St. Joseph's, Missouri. He was an aspiring musician who was in a couple of small-time local bands, and Debbie quickly fell for him, and they were married in 1970. Debbie had hoped it would get her away from living at home with her mother Betty and wanted to start a family of her own. Marshall's family had a history of broken families, abuse and alcoholism dating back to his great-grandmother and this would sadly pass on through the generations. Marshall's grandmother Betty came from an abusive home, also in St. Joseph's, Missouri, which was a small quiet working class town known for crime, abuse and alcoholism at the time. When growing up, Betty was often beaten physically by her own mother and while she was on her deathbed, Betty told her she hoped she pays for what she had done and that hell is waiting for her and that she would never forgive her. Betty couldn't wait to marry, have children, and have the typical dream home with the white picket fence, starting her family at a young age. But unfortunately, the pattern continued. While Betty attempted to be a better mother for her several children, including her eldest Debbie, aka Marshall's mother, when she split from Debbie's father, many new men would enter Betty's life. Debbie remembers having many stepfathers and that there was always different strange men at her house. This reckless behaviour from Betty resulted in Debbie being sexually abused by one of these men at the age of 12. He was kicked out and arrested before it escalated, and Betty questioned if Debbie had made it up, which she of course hadn't. After this, Betty had concerns over Debbie's mental health and observed her being a very jealous girl who once attempted to hit her brother in the head with a wrench when he was just a baby, despite initially being excited to have a sibling. It was a tough upbringing for Debbie, who witnessed domestic violence, alcoholism, constant fights, verbal abuse and drama within the household and regular visits by the police to their home. Debbie's brother Todd remembers just how desperate Debbie was to escape the family home and one couldn't honestly blame her as it was a toxic environment. Debbie also planned to be the best mother possible and wanted to be a young mother herself, giving her baby the best possible life away from the experiences that her mother put her through. And when baby Marshall came along, she loved him unconditionally and did the best she could. But as time went on and times got tough, she would eventually find herself falling into the family cycle of abuse and neglect. As Debbie and Bruce welcomed baby Marshall Mavers into the world, they moved from St. Joseph's, Missouri to Williston, North Dakota, as Bruce had managed to secure employment at his father's hotel after his father had to step down from the role and retire. The family of three lived in the basement at Bruce's parents' house, which instantly put pressure on the couple. Debbie became quite upset and things started to fall apart when Bruce's eyes started wandering for other women and he began to flirt with various female guests and employees at the hotel, which made Debbie understandably jealous and insecure. Debbie's brother Todd had noticed Bruce was quite an oddball and that he had a strange hobby as a skilled knife thrower where he believes Bruce would purposely throw these knives at people's feet to taunt them, and as a little strange joke to himself. 
Things only escalated here in Debbie and Bruce's relationship as it got to the point where Bruce started hitting Debbie and became an abusive husband. Not willing to stick around, have herself and Marshall in danger and not wanting to put up with the abuse like her mother and grandmother had. With not much choice, Debbie left Bruce one evening and headed home to St. Joseph's, Missouri to her mother Betty's house with six-month-old baby Marshall and just the clothes on their backs with some reports suggesting Marshall was more likely around the age of two by now. Debbie wasn't so keen to stay at her mother Betty's house, but she didn't really know where else to go, and at the time, they had been talking again. Marshall's father Bruce decided to completely ditch the family, not willing to fix his problems or support his child, and he decided to get a divorce from Debbie. Bruce relocated to California and chose never to see Marshall and Debbie ever again. Marshall could never understand why he left. He often felt like it was his fault and would later reveal that he couldn't even remember him or what he was like and if he actually ever loved him. Bruce went on to have another two children named Michael and Sarah, leaving Marshall in his past. Debbie was now left on her own to raise Marshall and they would struggle tremendously. Debbie did have some help from her mother Betty at first, but said she couldn't stand to be around her for more than a couple days at a time, as she found her to be a liar and manipulative, which are traits that Debbie was also accused of having. One positive for Marshall in his life, however, was that he could spend a lot more time with his beloved Uncle Ronnie. Betty had been pregnant with Ronnie at the same time as Debbie with Marshall, and Ronnie was born just two months before Marshall. Ronnie's surname was Polkenhorn and was born to a different father than Debbie's. From the moment they could make baby talk, Ronnie and Marshall were inseparable and were always communicating with each other. Marshall didn't have a lot of friends himself, so having Ronnie there was important for him. They would grow up side by side as best friends and also look quite similar in appearance, as well as the way they spoke, but with fallouts between Betty and Debbie they weren't always able to hang out. Their close bond was also interrupted by Debbie's decision to constantly move her and Marshall around from place to place as she searched for work in cheap affordable towns. Life was tough for young Marshall as Debbie would move him around a lot, never staying in a house for more than a year or two as they continually moved houses between Michigan and Missouri, including the towns of St. Joseph, Savannah, Kansas City and Detroit. They would often stay with family members when they couldn't afford to rent and Marshall was constantly uprooted from school sometimes every two to three months with a new school two to three times a year being a consistent pattern which Marshall found to be the roughest part of growing up. Marshall was forever forced to make new friends and could never become too comfortable in one home or school. He was always the new kid and had to catch up on work he had missed, with nearly every school being up to different stages in the curriculum, as he was often left behind and couldn't keep up with his work, and therefore missed important parts of his education. Marshall said, just for being the new kid all the time, he experienced bullying right from his early primary school years and all the way through to high school. 
At many different schools, he would get beat up regularly in the halls, bathrooms, and he would also be shoved into lockers, called horrible names, and would be jumped a lot from behind, at least once a week on his way home from school, as early as the age of five, while living on the east side of Detroit. A lot of the time, Debbie and Marshall would move back to Betty's in St. Joseph's, Missouri, before heading off somewhere new again. As Debbie kept losing work or getting fired for simply not showing up or pissing off the wrong people. They lived in all sorts of low income housing, including apartments, houses and in trailer parks and were most of the time reliant on the welfare system to get by. It was estimated that they had moved back and forth from Missouri to Detroit, Michigan as many as 20 times. While Debbie was for the most part trying her best, Marshall was suffering in the meantime. He grew up mostly without a father figure and was only around his uncles briefly when they returned to St. Joseph's. His closest role model in the shape of a father figure was Uncle Todd, who wasn't the best as he was quite racist, close-minded and homophobic and would teach Marshall all about masculinity and what it actually meant to be a man and his old-fashioned values that the only true relationship was between a man and a woman. On the other hand, however, he would take him to do activities such as fishing. Uncle Todd recalls taking Marshall fishing and that he was the most gentle, sensitive and caring kid as he didn't even want to hurt a worm by putting it on the fishing hook. Meanwhile, Debbie and Betty would both clash over their parenting methods for Ronnie and Marshall. Betty found Debbie to be too controlling over Marshall and that he could never speak up for himself or say what he wanted. Instead, he was ignored. As Betty recalls, he would pout and go sit on his beanbag and colour in while watching cartoons on TV. When he was young, Marshall would often express that he missed his father and attempted to send him letters but would always receive them back with return to sender. Marshall found his mother Debbie to be loving and nice for the most part, and then at the flip of a coin, she would become incredibly moody and abusive in an instant, almost like she had split personalities. Growing up, Marshall was described as a good, quiet and shy kid who was a bit of a loner that enjoyed his own space and company. Marshall was quite a smiley boy early on, but as life went on and got tough, he changed. He was described as a very sensitive kid whose feelings were often hurt very easily and he was a mama's boy who was often afraid to go off and play with the other children. He often had to be coaxed into playing with others, often refusing as he wanted to stay by his mother Debbie's side. This attachment issue was most likely caused by his father's exit and the uncertainty around Marshall's life as they were constantly on the move and stability was something that Marshall definitely needed in his life. All of this made it hard for Marshall to trust others as he reclused further and further until finding outlets like music as a form of escape and expression. According to his family, Marshall enjoyed watching cartoons on TV, drawing, colouring, listening to music and reading comic books or graphic novels. Marshall was a huge fan of superheroes and loved reading about them in comics, watching them on TV and dressing up like them. His family remembers him dressing as a ninja and as his favourite hero Batman, often repeating his favourite lines and he was incredibly talented at drawing heroes such as Spider-Man, The Avengers, Superman, Robocop and could basically draw anything. 
He would often get in trouble in class for drawing instead of doing his work, and the teachers never gave him credit for his talented drawing ability, and would often discourage him instead. Marshall would entertain himself for hours playing with his action figures such as Skeletor and superheroes and had a great imagination. He dreamed of one day having superpowers and this was all a way of escaping his bleak reality. Marshall's biggest interest however was music as he had listened to music almost 24-7 growing up. Music was always playing around the house and his mother and uncle Todd were also very musical. From very early on, it was evident that Marshall felt the music and would rock back and forth to the beat constantly. This turned into a form of habit where he would get in trouble for doing it at school and would always be seen rocking back and forth in the car, on the lounge or wherever he went. It was soon realised that this was becoming a problem and he started to become really hyper. In order to calm these habits down, he was placed on Ritalin often used for hyperactivity disorders such as ADHD. As Debbie attempted to suppress Marshall's behaviour, the fighting between Debbie and her mother Betty continued, so Debbie decided once again to move with Marshall and attempt to settle this time for good in Detroit, Michigan. This, however, would upset Marshall as he would miss hanging out with his uncle Ronnie. While Debbie had attempted to move away from the drama and fighting, Detroit wasn't exactly the safest or nicest of places to be at the time either. While it had been many years now since the Detroit race riots of 1967, which were some of the deadliest and destructive riots in all of American history, where many civilians were killed in the crossfire, tensions between the African American community and the white or Caucasian community were still on a high and very dangerous. Known as the heartland of the motor industry and once Motown Records, when they first relocated back to Detroit, they moved in for a short period of time with Marshall's great-grandmother, who lived over the other side of 8 Mile in Warren, Michigan, in a house she had been in since 1952, until Debbie and Marshall found a place of their own. It was here where Marshall attended school for six months straight, the longest period of time he would ever attend school for in one year. Prior to this, the longest he had ever been in school was just three months. Soon enough, Debbie found a new place to move her and Marshall into, but it wouldn't exactly be the nicest or friendliest area. Debbie had chosen for their new home, 19946 Dresden Street, located between 7 and 8 Mile Road in Eastside, Detroit which was in a rough neighbourhood, located just up the road to the ghetto, with many people out of work and getting involved in crime. The house was only small and basic, the outside walls were quite unique and covered in sandstone, and it was very cold in winter there, but was extremely cheap rent. In the backyard, they had a few trees, a bird bath and a swing, but it was all very basic and simple living. The area was predominantly known at the time for housing African-American people, and Marshall was one of the few kids that were white in the area, at a very sensitive time in the area's history. Marshall said about the area that there wasn't a lot to do, and wasn't much there at the time, with crime rates quite high, as there was nothing to do. One evening, they woke to find their garage had been lit on fire, and burnt to the ground. As it was so cold in the area, 
Marshall regularly wore hoodies and beanies on his way to school, with his Walkman in his pocket and his earphones in, which of course would later be adapted into his iconic look as Eminem. Marshall was sent to school at Dort Elementary in Roseville, Michigan. It was here at Dort Elementary that Marshall was bullied severely and almost didn't make it out of school alive a number of times. For months on end, Marshall had been bullied by an older African-American student named D'Angelo Bailey, who was also a lot bigger and stronger than the skinny and short Marshall. Marshall was only in the fourth grade when he would be knocked out by D'Angelo and thrown into the lockers and locked inside them, with every day for Marshall being a living hell and full of anxiety. Marshall was bullied to the point that he faked being sick often so he could stay home from school knowing he would have to face the bullies and especially D'Angelo. But Marshall knew that he wouldn't be able to keep doing this so he had no choice but to just keep going. In one incident, it's believed D'Angelo beat Marshall by knocking him to the ground and started kicking him repeatedly. The teacher finally stopped him sending a dazed and confused Marshall home to his mother instead of getting him checked over, where he returned home to find he was now bleeding from the ears and was rushed to hospital. In the cold winter of January 1982, when Marshall was just nine years old, he had been engaged in a schoolyard game of King of the Hill when he made his way to the male bathroom at recess time, minding his own business, when he was courted by D'Angelo and backed into the corner of the bathroom. D'Angelo then struck Marshall in the head and broke his nose in the process with what's believed to be a packed down snowball, basically resembling a ball of ice that included a hard object inside, perhaps being a rock, knocking Marshall unconscious as he dropped to the floor, bleeding from the head. D'Angelo left the scene and of course didn't notify any teachers. Marshall was left there for hours, with nobody reporting the incident for the remainder of the day, as Marshall laid there unconscious in a pool of his own blood. When school finished and all the kids flocked out, Marshall didn't emerge. Debbie was there to pick him up and was concerned and walked into the school to look for him. That's when she found him lying on the floor of the bathroom, still out cold and lying in a pool of his own blood. When she found Marshall, he was also convulsing and having a seizure on the floor. Debbie quickly called 911, but they didn't arrive quick enough, so she carried her still unconscious son to her van, and he was rushed to hospital. A fair amount of time had passed since he was knocked out, and Marshall went into a coma for a total of 10 days. After a number of doctors told Debbie it wasn't likely he was going to pull through and may have suffered brain damage, Debbie says she prayed for him and wasn't willing to give up on him. Marshall, against all the odds, eventually woke up, but it would be a long road to recovery. He was beaten so badly to the point of being concussed and almost lost the vision in his left eye. Marshall was then required to relearn all of his gross and basic fine motor skills again, He had to train himself to get movement back in his legs, arms and neck as well as the actions of his muscles all the way to simple things like trying to tie his own shoelaces again. He had suffered a severe blow to the brain and was very lucky to have recovered and even been alive. Debbie said that Marshall was that dependent that it was like looking after a toddler. Marshall suffered from headaches, loss of vision and hearing 
nausea, and experienced frightening reoccurring nightmares, all from this one incident, because of one stupid cowardly act. Debbie was understandably furious that this had happened to Marshall, and attempted to sue the school and D'Angelo, costing her an estimated $150,000 in medical bills and lawyer fees, but nothing was achieved. Debbie had already quit her job to care for Marshall, and all of this left her without an income and a means for paying her debts. It was hard enough paying for all of Marshall's medication, which Debbie eventually had him taken off of, as he was becoming a zombified version of himself. Over time, Marshall regained his motor skills and recovered, but would be left with the mental and physical scars for life. When it came time to return to school, even the teachers treated him unfairly and labelled him as mentally challenged and said things along the lines of, you must sniff too much glue, but this of course was due to his recent injury. During his recovery, music once again would be a key instrument in escaping his reality and helping him pull through the tough times. Just the year earlier, before they had made the move to Detroit, Uncle Ronnie showed Marshall a record called The Breaking Soundtrack that included hip-hop rapper Ice-T in a song called Reckless. Rap music had only just started rising from the underground at this stage and hearing this song would become a moment that inspired Marshall to take an interest in rap music and the art of rhyming as he ditched the rock and pop music he was brought up on with his mother for rap and hip-hop. Reckless would be the very first rap song that Marshall ever heard and borrowed the soundtrack off of Uncle Ronnie, playing Ice-T's song on repeat for days and days and memorised the lyrics to the song. In 1984, after all they had been through, when Marshall was just 10 years old with his mother, they relocated back to Kansas City where Marshall resumed his strong bond with his Uncle Ronnie. Marshall was very happy to be back and looked up to his uncle even more so at this point with their bond over rap music. Marshall's uncle Todd believes that the interest in rap music within the family had always been something passed on through the generations and that it was in their blood. Todd believes that he often liked to rhyme a lot while also Marshall's great-grandmother worked in the cotton fields in Alabama alongside African-Americans where they would rhyme and make up songs together to pass the time. Ronnie, however, was very influential on Marshall as they both learnt how to play the drums at the same time and began making mixtapes of themselves rhyming together and Ronnie would beatbox while Marshall rapped. At first, Marshall said he was too nervous to rap in front of his cool Uncle Ronnie as he thought he sucked, so at first he practiced in secret in his basement before finally showing Ronnie what he could do. Over time, they would even perform these raps together for their family and friends, and Marshall said that he preferred rapping as he didn't have to sing. Ronnie also loved music just as much as Marshall, and they dreamed of making it to the top together as a dynamic duo. With Marshall's newfound love for rap and hip-hop, he began practicing to breakdance at around the age of 12. He got so good at it that according to his mother Debbie, he could spin on his head for hours if he really wanted to, and Marshall made up a cardboard sign for his mother Debbie to wear around her neck that read 25 cents to watch him perform. Together with Ronnie, he would venture down to the playground with a boombox on his shoulder and they would breakdance with other kids. 
Marshall then discovered that there was a lot more amazing hip-hop and rap music out there, discovering acts such as the Beastie Boys, Rakim, Run DMC, and LL Cool J, who would be just four of his main influences, after Ice-T, with Marshall especially aspiring to be like LL Cool J or Run DMC, as he would plaster his wall with posters of these legends. Marshall claimed that at the time he didn't think he was very good at breakdancing, and once he discovered more and more rap music, it's all he wanted to do. Marshall would later reveal that he felt he related to the struggle often spoke about in hip-hop or rap music. Rap music provided the best distraction from his injury, as Marshall sat in his room for hours, listening to the same beats on repeat and writing his own rhymes to them. As Marshall had always been a recluse, many in his family and others associated with him thought perhaps he may have a form of social disorder or Asperger's. Marshall said he would think about rhyming words all day, which would continue on throughout his life and at times drove him crazy, as he couldn't switch it off. Debbie claims that Marshall would run to her at 3 in the morning, waking her up to hear his newest rhyme and to ask her if it was any good. In order to get better at this, Marshall decided to start reading the dictionary to work out what a range of words meant and how he could make them rhyme. He studied the dictionary back to front and got better and better at his rhymes, with one of the only subjects that he excelled in at school being English. Over time, he learned how to manipulate words to basically make anything rhyme, which became a handy skill to have further down the track. Growing up, Marshall felt like he wasn't ever good enough and worthless, but he says finding rap music saved him, and it was why he was so driven to pursue it, as he felt he had nothing else and couldn't see himself doing anything else. Marshall believes that the first ever rap line he wrote was when he was just 11 or 12 years old, while at his great aunt Edna's house, and that the lyrics read, Before you blink, I'll have 100 million lines, and like a ship, you'll sink. Aunt Edna's house appeared to be a source of inspiration for Marshall. He would stay here with Uncle Chuck and Aunt Edna when his mother wasn't able to look after him and he would be required to do some chores while he was here. But he adored them and the chores actually gave him a sense of purpose. It was here at his aunt and uncle's place where he first saw on TV the music video for Run DMC and their song King of Rock. Marshall has fond memories of watching the TV in Aunt Edna's living room when he began to drift off to sleep around 11 or 12 at night when the music video came on and he thought it was the coolest thing he'd ever seen. Another influential outlet for Marshall was through listening to the music of NWA. Marshall later stated that it helped him overcome anxiety related to bullying and the stand up for your rights and fight style mentality of NWA helped him to stand up to the bullies and taught him not to take crap from anyone and to fight back. Marshall said that NWA also helped him through his problems at home and made him feel stronger. He also said that it helped him come out of his shell more at school and despite continuing to get in fights and being jumped often on his way home from school, he said NWA told him how to fight back so instead of running or taking a beating, he would try his best to hit back. In 1986, Marshall became a big brother when Debbie had a child with a man named Fred Samara Jr. 
Their son together was named Nathan Kane Samara, who was commonly known as Nate. Fred, like Marshall's father, also left when Nate was a baby, leaving Debbie a single mother, now with two children. At the age of 14, Marshall was now attending Lincoln High School in Warren, Michigan, after once again relocating back to the Detroit area for the final move of his childhood. It was here where Marshall befriended a classmate named Mike Ruby, where the two began rapping together. Together, they even performed in school talent shows. By this age, Marshall had well and truly began writing songs seriously and was now going by the name Eminem, representing his initials of Marshall Mavers. Despite not having a lot of money, in 1988, Debbie took in two twin foster children named Kimberly Ann Scott and Dawn Scott. Kim and Dawn were 13 years old at the time and had also come from an abusive home and also never knew their father. After a couple of disagreements, they were kicked out of their home by their stepfather and their mother didn't object to this as they ran away from home for good. Marshall at the time was only 15 and he and Kim instantly shared a rivalry as they fought for Debbie's attention. Marshall was quite upset that he would now have to share his mother's love and time with two other kids as he felt like he wasn't getting enough attention before Kim and Dawn came along and now his fears set in that he would be replaced. Marshall's feelings of jealousy were legitimate however as Debbie admitted that she had always wanted a daughter. She was over the moon and couldn't help spoiling Kim and Dawn as she felt sorry for them and wanted them to feel safe and loved and get them back on their feet. Both Marshall and Kim would even fight for affection as they tried to squeeze in between each other to cuddle in with Debbie. Marshall had always been a mama's boy and now the one person he had spent most of his life with was being taken away from him and he felt threatened. At first, Kim was described as very quiet, kept to herself and very insecure as she had been through a lot in her young life. What Debbie didn't know, however, that under her own roof, Marshall and Kim's feud turned into a mutual attraction. As the pair started experimenting sexually, as Marshall had an upstairs bedroom that was quite private. Kim had actually first been attracted to Marshall when they were both attending the same school before she even moved in and saw him on top of the lunch tables rapping with his shirt off to an LL Cool J song called I'm Bad. Soon enough, Debbie busted the pair being intimate and ordered Kim to leave immediately, with Marshall deciding that he would go with her as they announced themselves as boyfriend and girlfriend and ran away together. Debbie was furious and things quickly changed from this point onwards as she told Marshall not to come back, kicking him out for good. Marshall and Kim went and stayed with their friend Bob Klaus up the block where they slept on his couch. Despite kicking Marshall out in the spur of the moment, Debbie would actually come looking for Marshall in an attempt to bring him home and sensed he was staying at Bob's, so she would drive down the street over and over looking for him. Debbie had a really loud car that made a distinctive noise, so it alerted them when she was coming down the road and Marshall would run and hide. Sometimes Debbie would come to the front door and ask Bob if he had seen Marshall, but he would act like he hadn't seen him around. 
Debbie tried numerous times to break the pair up and would often chuck a spanner into the works every time they were having a bad argument just to fuel it even further with the hope of breaking the pair up and having Marshall return to her. Sometimes it worked as they broke up a number of times but shortly after a breakup they were back together again. Marshall and Kim would argue constantly over her insecurities and was described as moody and controlling as Kim's true colours started emerging when she would lash out in a violent rage and physically abuse Marshall. On top of the physical abuse, she would play twisted mind games, screwing with Marshall mentally by writing loving cards for Marshall or being really caring and sweet and then would almost flick a switch and change like a split personality. She often taunted him and laid punches into him and Marshall said at times he was tempted to hit back but knew he couldn't do it and had been raised not to. Marshall got to the point where he was scared of her and felt like he was throwing his dreams away for her. Marshall, however, was said to be just as bad at times in other ways with the both of them being unfaithful to each other. But straight after a big fight, they would be straight back in bed together. Debbie believes she even witnessed Kim hit him in the head with her high heels on one occasion, which led to him bleeding from the face. When Marshall would later make it big, his bodyguard Byron Williams described Kim as Marshall's mother, reincarnated, and that he basically had got with his mother as she shared the same traits. Marshall felt that Kim was very controlling and that she was always asking where he was when he wasn't around. At about the age of 16 or 17, Marshall would form a strong friendship in high school with an African-American boy named Deshaun Dupree Holton, who would later be known as Proof and was one year older than Marshall despite being in the same class. Marshall first met Proof on the steps of the neighbouring Osborne High School where Marshall had been handing out flyers for a talent show that he was entering. Marshall had handed him a flyer and Proof asked him to rap for him, which he did, and Proof was very impressed. Proof then attended a number of talent shows featuring Marshall, and the two quickly hit it off. Proof was also raised by a single mother after his father, who was a producer, chose to chase his career instead of sticking around when Proof's mother was still pregnant with him. Proof himself was a talented rapper and would go everywhere around Detroit rapping. Marshall and Proof were inseparable like brothers and always had each other's back. Proof was described as a great guy who was very respectful and the two would always be seen hanging out together, with Proof also introducing Marshall to other influential rap songs. During their high schooling days together, they would sneak into the neighbouring high school in Osborne, Michigan, just to block up the road from his home on Dresden Street and they would compete in a freestyle rap battle with other students during their lunch breaks, where Marshall went by the name MCMM, and students would place bets on who they thought the winner was going to be, with Proof always yelling out, I got 10 bucks on the white boy, being Marshall of course, and he often won the bet, with Marshall being quite talented at this stage. Every Saturday at 12 noon, or occasionally at 4 to 6 p.m., Marshall and Proof made their way down to the hip-hop shop in West Seven Mile, Detroit, where Proof would host alongside DJ Head, who would spin the records while Marshall would compete in open mic rap battles. Proof would be the one who persuaded Marshall to give the hip-hop shop a try, saying, show them what you got. 
Marshall around this time would rap at a fast pace and would later admit that he wasn't really even saying much or pronouncing his words clearly, but he thought that it was a cool way to rap, despite this not actually being the case. But despite this, it still won him rap battles, so he kept thinking, the faster, the better. The hip-hop shop was a clothing store that transformed into a rap battle space on Saturdays, known for being ground zero for all the wannabe rappers in the Detroit rap scene. And to rap with the big timers, you had to prove yourself here first before progressing. In these rap battles, two opposing rappers would go head-to-head in a ruthless, no-holds-barred, off-the-cuff and improvised freestyle rap. Each rapper is given around 30 to 60 seconds to do their best while facing their opposition. A lot of the time, these rap battles would become very personal, aggressive and tense, and the best way to get a reaction from the audience was to burn your opposition with witty one-liners. The rapper with the biggest reaction from the audience overall would be declared the winner and would pass on through to the next round until the last rapper is left standing and declared the victor. Winning these battles brought you respect and street cred, but if you fail, you're the laughing stock of the Detroit underground rap scene. Physical prizes such as cash and other accessories were occasionally up for grabs while betting on the winner was a common practice. Marshall recalls that in the hip-hop shop early days, if you were inexperienced and a well-respected rapper walked in, you would be made to hand over the mic, even when you were mid-rap, as a show of respect, and you would be required to wait your turn. While nervous at first, and facing taunts from members of the audience, Marshall was a natural and quickly showed everyone just what he could do. He had some difficult early battles, but eventually started coming out on top. He would struggle from time to time with a couple of bad battles and would often be taunted and compared to Vanilla Ice, but he always gave his all and only got better and better as time went on. And the main thing was, he kept coming back for more. He did at times get booed and laughed at, with many from school and the rap clubs doubting if he would ever make it, being a white guy rapping to what's commonly known as African American or black music. Marshall knew, however, that to appeal to the African-American audience, that if he was controversial and attempted to shock the crowd with his lyrics, then he could win them over and get a bigger reaction out of them. Having proof by Marshall's side was very helpful, as it allowed Marshall to go where no white man was normally allowed to go in, such as certain clubs and parts of Detroit. Proof was well respected, and this usually allowed Marshall to continue performing in these spots. Later, when Marshall rapped at a club for the first time, he was booed off stage and recalls that it was traumatic, embarrassing, and he said that it made him question everything. But just days later, thanks to Proof's encouragement, he was back at it again. Together with Proof, Marshall would rap and spin Debbie's old records in the basement of Debbie's house, and some of their biggest influences at the time were mostly of African-American background and white rappers were basically unheard of, so there wasn't really many he could relate to. Marshall and Proof would consistently head down to the local record store called Record Time and pick out some new records from hip-hop artists looking for some inspiration and to get a taste of the latest hip-hop sound. Some of their favourite rappers at the time included Tupac, Ice-T 
Esham, NWA, Cool G Rap, Melly Mel, LL Cool J, Run DMC, Big Daddy Kane, Master Ace, Mantronics, BDP, Beastie Boys, and Rakim. Growing up, however, Marshall appreciated comedy-style music and parodies, and listened to a wide variety of genres, thanks to his mother Debbie, which would later make him so versatile in his own career. As some of the stuff he listened to included rock and pop music, with Elvis, Michael Jackson, Jimi Hendrix, ACDC, and Led Zeppelin being just a few of his favourites. Marshall would however take a disliking to local rappers and groups as maybe a sign of jealousy, which led him to despise Insane Clown Posse and Kid Rock. Marshall expressed his dislike of Kid Rock to the record store owner Harry Bunner as Harry was wearing a Kid Rock shirt. Harry questioned the validity of Marshall's statement as he hadn't seen Marshall rap before and at this point he was basically a nobody compared to Kid Rock. Not too long after this, Kid Rock was doing a record and merchandise signing session to promote his new album at Harry's record store when out of nowhere, Marshall emerged and challenged Kid Rock to a rap battle. A good-sized crowd had already gathered for Kid Rock, and when Marshall and Kid Rock went toe-to-toe, more people started to flock to the area. It was here where Marshall first made a name for himself, shocking onlookers and Kid Rock himself, with how cocky and forward he was. Marshall got right up in Kid Rock's grill, talking trash, and challenged him to a battle. Kid Rock, however, denied his request, but gave Marshall some great advice after having heard Marshall here and there around the Detroit area. Harry Bunner explained that Kid Rock said, Listen, today is my day. Your day may come, but this is my in-store right now. I've heard some of your stuff, and you go way too fast. You need to enunciate. When you enunciate, people understand you, and maybe you can have an in-store like me one day. It was advice that Marshall really needed to hear, and he would actually change his approach to the rap game after this. It was shortly after his encounter with Kid Rock that Marshall Mathers changed his rap name from M&M to Eminem. The name flowed and had a natural ring to it. During 1988, age 16, Marshall, now going by the name Eminem, along with Proof, started their first hip-hop group called New Jacks and made a demo tape together with the help of DJ Butterfingers. Eminem would attempt to sell his demo tape out of a local store called Golden Jet Records, but mostly sold them when standing out the front of schools as he handed out flyers to his rap battles at the same time. Eminem would even enter other schools' talent shows as a solo performer. While Eminem hated parts of growing up around Detroit, he would later look back on it fondly and remembers his mother Debbie giving him $2 to head down to a local store called A.O. Price and purchase cigarettes for her. Every day, Eminem would head down to the local store and instead of purchasing the cigarettes, he would steal them instead and keep the spare money for his lunch money. While all of this was going down, his grades were suffering significantly. Eminem despised school, but enjoyed English class, stating, quote, I found that no matter how bad I was at school, and no matter how low my grades might have been at some times, I always was good at English. 
I just felt like I want to be able to have all of these words at my disposal, in my vocabulary at all times, whenever I need to pull them out. You know, somewhere they'll be stored, like locked away. Often in classes, Eminem spent his time writing raps instead of completing his work. He would come home with homework, but would always put it aside and rap instead. At the age of 17, Eminem was repeating grade 9 for the third time, and due to poor grades and deliberately skipping school to attend rap battles, he dropped out of school altogether. It was during this time that Eminem landed a number of small paying odd jobs to help pay the bills at his mother's trailer that she had moved into in Warren, Michigan, just outside of Detroit with his half-brother Nate. Eminem would live between here with his mother and Nate and close to 8 Mile with Kim at her mother's house in an attic turned bedroom when their relationship was on and off all the time. Eminem believes that Debbie hardly worked at this stage despite being quite capable as she once worked as a real estate agent and she would often take more of Eminem's money without asking and would head off to play bingo hoping to win herself the grand cash prize. This gave him a chance to stay back, blast music and write songs and raps. Eminem would always write his songs on paper and sometimes could take weeks to finish writing a song. He later admitted, at age 17, he felt he was already writing much better raps than most rappers around him. Eminem and Proof, with the New Jacks, then joined forces with a group named Basement Productions, which included other friends from school, and a few years later, they renamed themselves Soul Intent. When Eminem was 17, and sourcing his first big break in the industry, Every Friday night, he would call up the radio station 93.1 DRQFM and their radio host and DJ Lisa Orlando, aka Lisa Lisa. Lisa Lisa held a weekly live segment that was a form of an open mic night that allowed local Detroit amateur and wannabe rappers to compete over the phone. If they were good enough, Lisa Lisa would invite them down to the live studio where they would get the chance to have their song produced for them by the station and potentially played live on air. The rules were clear cut and included that you couldn't cuss, be rude, upset anyone and you had to be original. Eminem would call up all the time with Lisa Lisa actually stating that at first she didn't see a lot of commercial promise in Eminem and said that the others that recorded their songs were more appealing to the Detroit and wider rap scene as they rapped about girls, guns, the ghetto, drugs, money and their crews like your Snoop Dogs and Tupacs. While she said Eminem on the other hand was more on the storytelling and comical side of things and she harshly but honestly stated that she couldn't see him having a hit song, as it just wasn't what people wanted at the time. However, Eminem was quite unique with his style and lyrics, which made him stand out above the rest, and eventually he became a regular on her show, as she began to really appreciate his dedication and storytelling raps as time went on and things changed. Listeners also started connecting with his music and his messages, as it was so different from everybody else. DJ Lisa Lisa remembers that one of the raps he performed was describing himself being locked in an insane asylum, and that he put a humorous twist on the dark rap, which to her and many others was quite impressive, and he went on to win the whole competition, channeling his anger and frustration into a passionate performance 
despite all of the doubters surrounding him. Eminem was lucky enough to have his rap song played live on air on Lisa Lisa's show, with a man by the name of Mark Bass being impressed by what he had heard, and he instantly rang the radio station and asked who it was. When he got Eminem's details off the station, he invited him to meet up at his personal studio. Mark Bass was one half of Jewish producers, the Bass Brothers, with the other brother being Jeff Bass. The Bass Brothers had actually first met Eminem when Eminem was just about 15 years old, but hadn't ran into him again since. Eminem and the Bass Brothers would begin a long-running friendship and working relationship while they also had strong connections with Elektra Records and attempted to get Eminem a record deal very early on, but they rejected the offer to sign him. Despite this, the Bass Brothers would stay in contact with Eminem and would give him another shot down the track. When Eminem was 19 years old, he received devastating news that would impact his life forever. On December 14th, 1991, Eminem's uncle Ronnie, also aged 19, sadly took his own life. Ronnie had been struggling with depression and feeling a lack of love by his family, including his mother Betty, and felt that love was missing from his life as he craved that connection. When Ronnie was dumped by his girlfriend at the time, he decided that that was the final straw and he took his own life with a self-inflicted gunshot to the head. The news hit Eminem like a ton of bricks. He had only just visited Ronnie earlier that summer where Eminem told him he wanted to be a rap star but Ronnie expressed to him that he himself had given up on that dream for good suggesting how bad his mindset was at the time even saying to Eminem it's just a dream or a fantasy and it's not going to come true. Ronnie was not only Eminem's uncle but his best buddy that he had basically been raised alongside. Inseparable since birth, sharing striking similarities and both sharing a love of rap music, Eminem was especially upset as he hadn't been there for him around that time as he was wrapped up in his own life struggles with Kim and Debbie. Eminem was too upset to attend his funeral and chose to stay home instead. Making matters a whole lot worse was at the time he was in between a breakup with Kim so he had no support. Eminem was staying with his mother Debbie, who had told him that Ronnie's death was because Eminem wasn't there to answer the phone the day Ronnie died, as he tried to call, but Eminem missed it and was too caught up in his relationship with Kim. Angry and upset at losing her brother, Debbie made a horrible statement and also told him she wishes it was Eminem instead of Ronnie. Eminem was feeling incredibly guilty about the alleged phone call that he had missed from Ronnie, but the fact was that this was a lie created by Debbie, and Eminem's grandmother Betty confirmed that this never actually happened, and that perhaps Debbie said this to deter him away from Kim, displaying the desperate and deranged lengths that Debbie would go to to pull her son away from Kim. Eminem's grandmother Betty made things worse, however, when she sent a videotape recording of the funeral to Eminem, despite him not wanting to see the funeral. Despite being distraught, Eminem gave in to temptation, putting the tape on, but was quite traumatised, as it was also an open casket. Betty believed that her intentions were good, and that she thought he needed to see it, to realise it was real, and to come to terms with his death. But Debbie strongly disagreed, as the infighting with the family continued. 
Eminem took some time out to grieve, but would mostly go through the process alone and confused, wondering if he was responsible with all the guilt placed on him by his mother. Eminem suffered nightmares from Ronnie's death for some time afterwards, and some say he never recovered. As a reminder of his beloved uncle, Eminem kept Ronnie's dog tag necklace that would continue to feature later on in his career. With Ronnie's death and the trouble between Kim and Eminem, Debbie was becoming more and more abusive towards Eminem and his little brother Nate. Eminem would be required to do most of the caring for Nate and had to take on a parenting role as Debbie began taking a range of prescription medication and abusing them. They had now moved into a trailer park in Warner, just outside of Detroit, as everything progressively got worse. Nate was also sent to Roseville Elementary, where Eminem was violently bashed. Nate was also bullied severely here, and was then kept home from school with Debbie for an extended period of time. Around this time, when Nate was around 8 years old, he was given up to foster care due to Debbie's state as an unfit parent. Nate would return to Debbie's care the following year, however, but things hadn't improved and he would be taken away a number of times over the years. Over the next few years, Eminem continued to work on his craft, improving out of sight, and would compete in rap battles and open mic nights around Detroit with proof by his side as his hype man, responsible for getting the crowd behind Eminem. Slowly over time, Eminem began to earn the respect of the underground scene, but it wasn't easy as the scene was obviously dominated by the African-American community and they didn't take well initially to a white man trying to rap. In 1992, Eminem appeared as an extra in the music video for Champ Town for their song Do Da Dippity, but was struggling to land roles of his own and was stuck in the underground scene. He felt at times like giving up after years of not really going much further with his hip-hop career. Eminem was determined to make it for both himself and Ronnie and wanted to prove his mother wrong, who Eminem believes doubted him, despite Debbie later claiming she was responsible for his success. Eminem began looking for ways to get his name out there any way he could as he began searching outside of Detroit for more followers and hoping the right person would spot his talent. Over these years, Eminem had also gotten back together with Kim and had been in trouble with the law after being arrested for a drive-by shooting with a paintball gun as he was an accomplice in the car while his friend shot the paintball gun out the window. But he and his accomplices were let off when the witness chose not to show up for court and the case was dismissed. In February 1995, Eminem and Proof collaborated and got the chance to record and release their first EP together under their name, Soul Intent. It included just the two tracks, including the song Fucking Backstabber and Bitterphobia, with Eminem paying out of his own pocket to record the songs with DJ Mannix mixing the tracks. The EP was labelled with an explicit language warning on the back of the cassette and included a quote from Proof that read, Backstabbers don't live too long. Around my way, friendships betrayed. In the hood you die for that. So remember the backstabber always loses in the end. A friend is a friend, till the end to eternity. The backstabber shall never flourish. When looking closer at the meaning behind the song Backstabber, and the quote on the cassette, 
it's believed that the backstabber in question was Brian Harmon, or better known as the rapper Champ Town, who previously included Eminem in one of his music videos for Do Da Dippity. Champ Town was believed to have tried, but failed, to get into Kim's pants, only to be busted by Eminem. Champ Town later denied these claims, but their friendship did turn sour after this, and the line in the song that reads, Proceed with caution, watch your back fellas, he could be coming at your girlfriend next, definitely suggests something went down between the two. The other track titled Bitophobia, on the other hand, provides a great early insight into just how fast Eminem could spit his words. Eminem used all of his money he earned from tax to pay for the recordings for this EP and to press 500 copies. And while it did okay in the Detroit area, it didn't make it much further and he only managed to sell 200 of the 500 copies that were made. The problem was, there wasn't much of a platform for musicians or rappers in general at the time in Detroit, as no one was really bothering to look there for talent, and instead you had to be noticed in a place like New York or LA. After hearing Eminem's latest work with Proof, Mark and Jeff Bass, who had now known Eminem for quite some time, decided to give him a second crack at the industry and signed him to FBT Productions. As Eminem's career was slowly but surely getting somewhere, he just needed the funds and the right tracks to stick at the right time. However, yet another big life-changing moment was just around the corner for the now 22-year-old when it was announced in early 1995 that Eminem was set to become a father after Kim fell pregnant. When Kim announced the news, Eminem was excited to become a dad but feared that he wouldn't be able to provide for his child as his job was not paying well and he was worried about not being able to find a sufficient house for them. On Christmas Day, the 25th of December, 1995, Eminem became a father for the first time and was instantly in awe. They named their newborn daughter Haley Jade Scott and Eminem was now determined to make it in the hip-hop industry for his daughter and Kim. Eminem vowed to be the father that he never had and he wanted to be there for his daughter and tried his hardest to make things work. He was described as a great dad who was loving and caring and he really stepped up to the mark. But Kim, on the other hand, would often use Haley to manipulate Eminem. Haley's last name was made Scott instead of Maffers to protect her identity and keep some form of privacy if Eminem was eventually to make it. For three years, Eminem worked on and off at a roadhouse diner, family restaurant and bar called Gilbert's Hunting Lodge, located near the St. Clair Shores of Detroit, Michigan. His job included washing the dishes and involved working in the kitchen as a short order or fast food style cook and he was reportedly quite good at it. He could cook up all sorts of fast food meals such as burgers, fries, ribs and pizzas all while bopping away in the kitchen with his headphones on listening to the latest hip hop beats. Eminem was a good cook according to his work colleagues who said he handled the fast paced environment well. Eminem would leave Gilbert's a number of times for better paying work, but when that fell through, he always returned to Gilbert's, who were always happy to have him back in the kitchen, as he became a well-respected member of the team, according to his boss. 
Eminem would work double shifts on a minimum wage just to make ends meet, but a lot of the time, it wasn't enough to pay bills and rent. It's believed that for a period of six months straight, he worked 60-hour weeks. His workmates described him as quiet, that he kept mostly to himself, and that he just did his job, and nothing more, nothing less. Over time, as he got more experience working at Gilbert's and grew comfortable, he began rapping out loud while he cooked for all his colleagues to hear, who were all quite shocked at how good he was, especially after being such a quiet and reserved individual. His colleagues remember him being focused and intense and that he often wore baggy pants. At Gilbert's, Eminem started blasting rap music on the stereo, driving his work colleagues crazy and wouldn't just listen to other rappers, but would also play his own music to teach himself better ways of improving his own techniques by analysing his lyrics and style, while also asking his work colleagues what they thought of his songs. Eminem was well known for constantly making up new raps in the kitchen, with one famous story referring to how he would make up raps based off of people's orders from the menu and would bring in his personal cassette tapes for his work colleagues to check out, while he would also go as far as trying to persuade them to come along to his gigs or rap battles. While many of his workmates weren't necessarily into rap music, they would go along to support him anyway. Many of his workmates didn't exactly like the harsh and explicit things Eminem would rap about, but they said they were able to separate the two, and that his lyrics are so different to his real-life quiet persona. While working here at Gilbert's, Eminem worked on his dream as a rapper by night, as he would work his job hours around to fit in rap battles, and would attempt to sell his demo tapes of originals that he had recorded and would gig in the Detroit area in clubs, bars, and at times even in the street. Eminem's job at Gilbert's was just enough to keep food on the table for Haley and Kim, but tensions were still high between Kim and Eminem, with his work colleagues remembering that they would always be broken up and then back together again, and that Kim would come into work sometimes just to stir things up with him and stress him out. His work colleagues remember that they would wind each other up and occasionally, just to be spiteful, Kim would come in with Haley to drop her off to Eminem when they were split up and then turn around and say that actually he couldn't have Haley tonight and would leave with her, causing Eminem to rage and an awkward scene would occur in the middle of the restaurant. Eminem would be left feeling distraught and emotional, but then a week or two later, they would be back together again, and that it was like watching her play mind games with him. Despite breaking up and getting back together on a regular basis, Kim would request child support from Eminem, which he happily agreed to. Eminem was incredibly driven, and all day and all night, he would be looking for ways to improve his rapping skills. Whenever he thought of something clever, he would write it down on the back of orders, paper towel, and sometimes his hand. That way he could jot it down later on a proper piece of paper. While most musicians would write on a notepad, Eminem had his lyrics scattered across various pieces of paper as the ideas would flow through him. He would even think of the type of beat he wanted to accompany the song and the main ingredient, plenty of rhyming. He even has a coding system for matching up rhyming words, and while it looks strange to others, it was a formula that would work well for him, with various phrases written across a page in a brainstorming pattern, as he would eventually link them up to create an epic rap. 
A lot of the time, he listened to samples over and over until he found the perfect words to match the song. Sometimes a phrase or word just wouldn't go with a particular song, so he would keep it jotted down until he found the perfect rap that it would eventually fit. All of these initial scribings would be kept in a shoebox that he still uses to this day and calls this collection of material Stacking Ammo. And he says when it comes to writing his lyrics, there is a large technical process. In the meantime, Eminem kept working extremely hard to make it and would often put his own posters up around town to encourage others to come watch him rap. He would go to bed thinking about rapping and wake up in the same mentality to the point where it was the only thing that he wanted so badly. Words and rhyming phrases would flow through his brain so often that he would wake up in the middle of the night and jot down new lines, describing it as like a disease. While Eminem enjoyed performing at the hip-hop shop, Eminem would also compete at the Ebony Showcase on Tuesday nights, but Eminem's favourite place of all for a rap battle would be at St Andrew's Church, turned hip-hop club, on Friday nights. The basement in the building, known as The Shelter, would be the place where monster rap battles were held, and it was known as the best place for proving yourself as a freestyle rapper, and was the next step after proving yourself at the hip-hop shop. St Andrews would be the very first chance Eminem was given at making it to the big time, pitted against some of the best underground rappers in Detroit. The audience, who usually vote for the winner, were made up of 99% of African Americans, so the odds were greatly stacked against him from the beginning. That was unless he had the talent to change their minds, which of course, he did. After Eminem performed a few times at the Shelter, or St Andrews, he quickly became one of the most engaging rappers on the scene, and was winning competitions left, right and centre. Only problem was... Kim would always be on his back about wasting his time on rapping instead of looking after his child's needs, which wasn't clear to see in the short term, but Eminem was looking towards their future as a family and attempting to chase his own dreams at the same time. From 1995 into 1996, Eminem managed to secure more studio time at Basement Studios through relentlessly working double shifts and rapping whenever he could. This time around, it would be to record his debut album, titled Infinite. Eminem teamed up with Mark and Jeff Bass once again, but this time, Eminem also worked with rapper Dinaum Porter, aka Mr. Porter, to produce and write the songs with Eminem on the album, with Proof also helping out in the studio with vocals and instruments. During mid-1996, Proof, Eminem, and a number of other Detroit rappers in the underground battle scene all united through meeting in the hip-hop shop and decided to form a ruthless rap group, or crew, called the Dirty Dozen, or as they're also known as, D12. The idea was initially thought up by Proof, and throughout the year, they searched for recruits, hoping to fill 12 spots with the best Detroit rappers around but were only able to find a total of seven that fit in with their vision, that were simply talented enough and had a good reputation. D12 members would later state that when Eminem was starting to make it, with just the six of them and their alter egos combined, it added up to 12 personalities anyway, therefore the D12 name was still relevant. 
D12 often chopped and changed with its members, but the main group consisted of Eminem, aka Marshall Mathers, or later Slim Shady, Proof, aka Dirty Harry, Mr. Porter, aka Con Artis, Bizarre, aka Peter S. Bizarre, Bugs, aka Robert Beck, and Conniver, aka Rondell Bean. Together they made a pact that if one of them made it to the big time, that they would come back for the rest. Eminem was quoted as saying, Started a group of misfits. Proof had a proposition. If we all band together, there ain't no stopping this shit. Come up with aliases, bipolar opposites, and be ready to come off the top as sharp precision. The seven of them, including Eminem, planned on collaborating together, but due to Eminem being tied up with his first album, Infinite, he struggled to find time to be part of the group. They did, however, record and release an EP called The Underground EP, which built them a solid reputation locally and had many solid tracks on it. On the EP, Mr. Porter and DJ Head helped produce it, and they also collaborated with other talented MCs, such as Mr. Porter's friend, IQ, and Jules. With Eminem basically being a non-member due to his schedule, Bugs brought in his good friend Swifty McVeigh, aka Swift, to take his place. On the 12th of November, 1996, Eminem's debut album, Infinite, was released through the Bass Brothers label, Web Entertainment. While critics rarely had anything constructive to say to Eminem anyway, in his early days, the album received mixed reviews and was deemed a commercial flop selling just 500 copies, according to Eminem, and an estimated 1,000 copies max, which were printed in both vinyl and cassette. However, due to a lack of promotion and funding for more copies to be printed, Eminem mostly sold copies out of the boot of his car at gigs. Eminem later said that he felt with Infinite that it was unsuccessful as he wasn't putting enough of his own life story and experiences into the album. Eminem was inspired to write the album through Tupac's Me Against the World album and Nas with his album Illmatic. Eminem did manage to draw similarities to hip-hop artists Nas and AZ and was quoted as saying, Obviously I was young and influenced by other artists and I got a lot of feedback saying that I sounded like AZ. Infinite was me trying to figure out how I wanted my rap style to be how I wanted to sound on the mic and present myself. It was a growing stage. I felt like Infinite was like the demo that just got pressed up. The Infinite album featured 11 tracks where Eminem attempted to make them radio friendly enough in hopes of Detroit Radio picking them up. Themes from the album included Eminem opening up about his fears of raising Haley when she arrives with limited cash flow and his desire to make it in the music business to support her while also adding in some of his sarcastic humour at the same time. Eminem was openly honest however that the album wasn't his best work and told Rolling Stone magazine in a later interview in 1999, quote, It was right before my daughter was born, so having a future for her was all I talked about. It was way hip-hopped out, like Nas and AZ, that rhyme style that was real in at the time. I've always been a smart-ass comedian, and that's why it wasn't a good album. Despite what the critics and Eminem may have thought about the album, those that listened to it were impressed by what he had to offer, and most people actually thought he was a black rapper and not white. 
Eminem would sell copies inside clubs and at Proof's gigs with his group Fivella. He continued to push his music at local radio stations, including WJLB-FM 98, hosted by DJ Bushman, who was renowned for giving local rappers a chance to be heard in Detroit and beyond. And he liked what he heard from Eminem and wanted to play his tracks, but he was unable to play his music on radio simply because he was white and that it would have went against WJLB's radio policy as DJ Bushman didn't have the authority to play whatever he liked. The leftover copies of Infinite would be given out to reputable figures for free in the hopes that it fell into the right hands. Anywhere Eminem and his D12 crew thought that popular rappers would be, he would head straight out and stand outside hotels and wait for them to emerge, verging on stalking. With Mr. Porter and Bazaar, Eminem would stand there with a boombox on his shoulder, playing his infinite album to get their attention, and would try to hand them a copy. Some would take it, and others would tell him to fuck off. On one occasion, Eminem sat in a hotel lobby, waiting for rapper Fat Joe. As Fat Joe arrived in a limo, he steps out and walks towards Eminem, who was holding his boombox and a copy of Infinite. Right when he went to introduce himself, a random passerby yelled out West Coast, and Fat Joe, thinking it was Eminem yelling out, replied East Coast, due to the feud between the two areas. A furious Fat Joe then got right in Eminem's face before walking off, and Eminem was left standing there without getting the chance to even give him the cassette. In 1997, Eminem's manager, Mark Kemp, then paid for Eminem's airfare to fly to Cincinnati to compete in a rap battle competition for prize money known as the Scribble Jam. Eminem was broke at the time, so a win would have been perfect, but after competing in the Scribble Jam, he only managed to come in second place to a talented freestyler named Juice. Eminem, however, felt it was a good experience, allowing him to spread his freestyle ability outside of Detroit, despite walking away empty-handed. When Eminem returned home to Detroit, things got worse when he arrived home to an empty house, as Kim and Haley had gone to live at Kim's mother's house in nearby Warren, Michigan, after Kim and her mother had reconciled over their past and had patched up their relationship. Eminem was left on his own as he spiralled into depression. He couldn't afford to pay for diapers to send to Kim for Haley, as well as child support, and the rent money was too hard to keep up with, so he had to move out and move back with his mother Debbie in the trailer park, as well as couch surfing at friends' houses. Eminem worked many jobs during this time in different industries to make ends meet, but struggled to hold them down, including at a pizzeria named Little Caesars Pizza and at a factory called Gibbs Machinery. With album sales from Infinite not picking up at all, and he still had no one sourcing him out for a record deal. Eminem had been rejected by the Detroit community, and he was pissed off that no one would give him a chance. He was left with as little as $40 to his name around this time, as everything looked pretty bleak for Eminem. Due to the album flopping, and Eminem feeling as though his dream might be over, he began to spiral out of control, engaging in the use of drugs and alcohol. Eminem would express that he felt like giving up at this point, and there were still many haters, including those close to him, that were talking behind his back, saying that he would never be able to make it. 
Eminem himself came to the realisation that he may have to toil away in dead-end jobs for the rest of his life. This realisation devastated Eminem as he became more and more depressed and was popping pills on the daily. Everything started piling on top of him as Eminem then lost his job at Gilbert's for the final time, stating, It was like five days before Christmas, which is Haley's birthday. I had like $40 to get her something. Eminem's relationship with Kim had become toxic and they were arguing constantly. He was now left without an income with no hope of supporting his daughter as thoughts of his beloved uncle Ronnie crossed his mind and he thought maybe he too should join him. This in turn led to Eminem attempting to take his own life at just the age of 24 after swallowing a large handful of pills including 25 codeine pills among others. Eminem, however, luckily survived his near-death experience and was lucky to be alive to fight another day. As Eminem laid there on the floor, puking the pills up for around 30 minutes, coincidentally enough, he had been recording the song titled Rock Bottom that very same day. Now at Rock Bottom himself, surviving this suicide attempt gave Eminem a newfound hope and an even bigger motivation to succeed and beat all the haters that had previously knocked him down. He started doing gigs again and getting paid, and while it wasn't much, it was enough to keep him motivated to keep going at it. Feeling as though his image was not appealing enough to a wider audience, Eminem decided he needed to come up with a gimmick or an alter ego that would set him apart from the rest and force people to listen to what he had to say. This alter ego was named Slim Shady and would act as Eminem's crazy and outrageous other half, known for letting out the bitter, angry, dark and tormented side of his persona. He decided to start writing whatever came to his mind, no matter how crazy or controversial, fusing this with dark humour and occasionally wearing a Jason-style hockey mask and blue overalls, and at times even brought a chainsaw out at his live gigs. This was combined with his usual attire of baggy tracksuits with his chains, white singlets, caps, beanies and do-rags. As a whole package, it just seemed to work and the crowd loved it. When coming up with the idea of Slim Shady, Eminem said, quote, Boom, the name hit me, and right away, I thought of all of these words to rhyme with it. Eminem would express in interviews that he liked to switch between personas, such as Marshall Mathers, Eminem, and Slim Shady, as it kept everyone guessing, including the interviewer. With the help of Eminem, aka Slim Shady's manager, Mark Kemp, he arranged for Eminem, Proof and D12 member Bazaar to travel for meetings with music executives from labels in New York. Both Bazaar and Eminem played their music to the executives, with Eminem believed to have got the better response out of the two. However, nothing would come from these meetings just yet. At the time, however, Eminem had been working on his alter ego's debut EP, called the Slim Shady EP, with the Bass Brothers on production once again. It was during this time in late 1997 that Proof introduced New York-based artist manager and lawyer and Detroit local Paul Rosenberg to Eminem at the hip-hop shop. It was here where Paul bought an infinite cassette tape off of Eminem for just $6 and Eminem impressed Paul by freestyle rapping for him. Paul Rosenberg went home and played Eminem's cassette tape of Infinite 
and although he liked what he heard, he didn't see Eminem as a star and decided he would stay in touch with him, but stand back and allow him to get more experience, exposure, and growth as a rapper first as he headed back to New York. Paul Rosenberg was once a wannabe rapper himself, going by the name of Paul Bunyan, and was also a recent university graduate from the Mercy Law School after studying law and wanting to pursue a career as a music lawyer, which would later come in handy to Eminem as they build a strong connection together over time. Paul was quoted as saying about the time that the Red Sea did not part, the sun did not shine out of the heavens and make me realise that this was the next biggest artist, but I thought he was really good. He was selling infinite, literally hand-to-hand to people and to stores, whoever would take it. The Slim Shady EP was officially released on the 10th of December 1997 and would revive Eminem's hopes of becoming a signed artist. The Slim Shady EP included 10 tracks with some of the most interesting, including the songs Just the Two of Us, which was later renamed 97 Bonnie and Clyde, and had a dark twisted theme that toyed with Slim Shady going for a drive with Haley to dispose of Kim's body. Eminem's first collaboration with the newly formed D12, after Bizarre and Proof teamed up with him, called Murder Murder, is the first indication of the incredible storytelling ability of Eminem and highlights two separate crime stories involving issues common in Detroit, such as drug abuse, rape, violence, and police brutality, and he also manages to slip in a nod to Biggie and his brother Nathan while using a sample from Tupac's track, Outlaw, and Master Ace's track, Slaughterhouse. While in the track Just Don't Give a Fuck, Eminem sums it up as he says, Just Don't Give a Fuck was a song that I wrote when I was staying at my mother's house. It was around the time that Haley was born. She wasn't even a year old yet. All kinds of shit, not being able to provide for my daughter, my living situation, etc. Just started building up so much that I had just had it. Just Don't Give a Fuck was actually the second song where people that knew me were like, What the fuck are you talking about? See, I didn't normally talk about stuff like that. I soon found myself doing things that I normally didn't do, like getting into drugs and drinking. I was really fucked up. I was sick of everything. Kim and I had Haley. My producers FBT were just about to give up on me. We weren't paying rent to my mums and just a whole bunch of other horrible shit was going on. The album opens with a short skit that features Eminem becoming one with Slim Shady as two entities become one, and the Infinite album is left in the past. While a second skit, towards the middle of the album, is titled Mummy, and all that can be heard is the sound of a body being dragged and placed into a car boot, suggesting this was in relation to Eminem's mother Debbie, or in fact Kim, being the mother of Haley. Themes from the album explored Eminem's struggles with alcoholism and drugs, his suicide attempt, and the way he was shunned by the Detroit area and radio for being a white rapper, despite his obvious talent, which is explored in tracks like Low Down Dirty, where Slim Shady is introduced, and the song If I Had, where Eminem references the Bare Naked Ladies song If I Had a Million Dollars, as he dreams of a better life financially for Kim and his daughter Haley. Eminem spoke about the backlash of the Infinite album and how it angered him by saying, After that record, every rhyme I wrote got angrier and angrier. 
A lot of it was because of the feedback I got. Motherfuckers was like, you're a white boy, what the fuck are you rapping for? Why don't you go into rock and roll? All that type of shit started pissing me off. The Slim Shady EP was classed as horrorcore hip-hop due to its dark humour, surrounding subjects like homophobia and murder, which would both bring attention to his work and land him in hot water at the same time. The EP sold reasonably well and earned Eminem bookings for gigs, and the EP had also made it into the Detroit record stores. According to Eminem, he believes 250 of 500 copies were sold, but this time around, critical reviews were leaning more towards the positive side, which hinted that he may be onto something with the Slim Shady gimmick. Eminem started to gig on the small club scene, and people started remembering who he was and coming back to his gigs. Eminem's manager, Mark Kemp, had attended a music industry conference in Detroit, where he approached an influential music power broker named Wendy Day and handed her a copy of the Slim Shady EP. She was reluctant to take it at first, but when she did and first played it at home, she instantly loved it, stating that Eminem had restored her faith in white rap music, with the likes of Vanilla Ice creating a negative stigma where they couldn't be taken seriously. Wendy Day was responsible for putting together a five-man rap team for the Rap Olympics, selecting Eminem for the team and paying for his ticket to LA. At the time the Slim Shady EP dropped, Eminem, Kim and Haley were back living together in a rough neighbourhood due to the cheap rent, but it was considered highly dangerous with drive-by shootings regularly occurring and their own house being broken into a number of times. Eminem felt like he had no choice but to give the Rap Olympics his all, as this felt like it was his last shot to make it. Kim had been moving back and forth from this house and her mother's with Haley, putting stress on Eminem at the time, and making matters worse, they were unfairly evicted from the house they were residing in just a day before the Rap Olympics. As Eminem's own landlord had been renting the property off of someone else, and he was the one that hadn't been keeping up with the payments. Eminem, on the other hand, hadn't missed a payment yet, despite scraping by most of the time. So he was furious, and Kim and Haley went and stayed at Kim's mother's, while Eminem chased his dream, and with nothing to lose, and everything to gain, he agreed to travel to Los Angeles, near LAX airport, for the big-time rap battle competition, the Rap Olympics. The winner of the Rap Olympics would take home $500 and a Rolex watch, and those competing would be required to pick categories out of a hat and freestyle rap, with one of these categories being storytelling, something that was right up Eminem's alley. Eminem was killing it that day, but controversially fell short, coming second to Juice once again, after he previously defeated Eminem in Cincinnati at Scribble Jam. Eminem, his crew, and a majority of the audience felt that Eminem was robbed of his victory that day, as Juice had only rapped once that day and went straight through to the final, whereas Eminem defeated a number of rappers to get there. Eminem was also picked to rap first, and Juice strategically chose to walk behind Eminem and go and stand where he couldn't be seen, behind a screen object, so Eminem couldn't look him in the eye. This gave Eminem nothing to work with, and when it came to Juice's moment to rap, Eminem froze up and had nothing to diss Juice on. 
Juice came out strong and aggressive, all up in Eminem's face. Eminem was all choked up and froze, and Juice took out the win. However, Eminem earned a lot of respect that day, and earned himself an appearance on LA radio to rap live on air before heading home to Detroit. After being a hit the first time around on radio, Eminem was then asked back onto another LA radio station where Dr. Dre happened to be listening and loved what he had heard. Eminem's work colleagues at Gilbert's Lodge knew that once he had started taking time off to travel to LA for promoting his work, that he was bound to make it. However, things only got worse in his personal life when Eminem returned to Detroit to collect his possessions from the house as he had been evicted just before the Rap Olympics, to find his stuff had been placed all over the lawn by the landlord, and half of it had already been taken by looters, including turntables and equipment that he had worked extremely hard for. Eminem then grabbed whatever was left and placed it inside his car as storage, and as it was now late at night, he broke back into the house and slept on the living room floor. As Eminem laid on the floor, he pondered what had happened at the Rap Olympics and was disappointed in losing and distraught that he had headed back to Detroit empty-handed. But just when he thought that his dream was over, it was just his luck that an 18-year-old Interscope Records intern named Dean Gesslinger was in the audience at the Rap Olympics and was blown away by Eminem. Gesslinger requested Eminem to give him a copy of the Slim Shady EP to take back with him, but little did Eminem know that this young man worked for Interscope Records and half-heartedly threw Dean a copy, not thinking much would come from it. Gesslinger then forwarded the copy onto the head of Interscope Records, Jimmy Iovine, who also enjoyed it, and then he played it for hip-hop artist and producer Dr. Dre, Dre was impressed and organised Eminem to come and meet him after sourcing him out just three days after listening to the tape. At the time, the Slim Shady EP had sold 1,000 to 2,000 printed copies. That was before Eminem received a random request from a man in Las Vegas who said he wanted to purchase roughly 3,000 to 5,000 copies. While Eminem set off to Las Vegas to sort that out, Eminem then returned to Detroit where producer Mark Bass told him that he had received a phone call off of some doctor. Eminem straight away knew exactly who it was and couldn't believe it, of course being Dr. Dre. Eminem travelled to meet Dr. Dre and the two hit it off instantly, with Dr. Dre signing Eminem to his first major record deal with Dre's own label, Aftermath Entertainment, which runs under Interscope and Universal Records. Interscope Records was the perfect fit for Eminem, as they weren't a stranger to controversy or rap stars, including Tupac, Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, and even horror rock and metal artist Marilyn Manson. When speaking about hearing Eminem for the very first time, Dr. Dre said, In my entire career in the music industry, I have never found anything from a demo tape or a CD. When Jimmy played this, I said, Find him, now. Dre was criticised by his colleagues for signing a white rapper, but he knew that Eminem had that special something, as he said, I don't give a fuck if you're purple, if you can kick it, I'm working with you. Dr. Dre was around seven years older than Eminem, and would act as his mentor, and became a father-brotherly figure to him. 
Dre was originally from Compton and had worked with the likes of Snoop Dogg, 50 Cent, Tupac, World Class Wrecking Crew and the NWA and was well renowned in the hip hop and music producing industry as the best of the best, so Eminem was in great hands. After signing the record deal, the very first thing that Eminem bought besides diapers for his daughter was a 93 red Camaro for just $1,200 after receiving five grand up front for signing and he would pay for his mother's repayments at the trailer park in between tours to have somewhere to stay when he wasn't doing well with Kim. This however didn't last long when he came back to the trailer one day to find an eviction notice on the door. Eminem was embarrassed and everything had been cleared out and was completely gone. Debbie moved into another trailer across town and Eminem went back to live with Kim at her mother's. With Dre and Eminem getting together, they wasted no time and headed straight into the studio to work on a project called the Slim Shady LP from late 1997 to mid-1998. Little did Eminem know that his rap career was just about to take off in a way he never thought was possible. Join us next time in part 2 where we see Eminem release the Slim Shady LP as his career goes to the next level and his life outside the studio does too as this crazy story continues. Thank you for tuning into that episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes from season 1 and 2, ranging from Kurt Cobain and Freddie Mercury to Prince, Chasey Chapman and Stevie Nicks, and up and comers like Youngblood, Tones and I, and The Kid Leroy. For more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcast or our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and even YouTube and Spotify, where you can find a range of playlists featuring the music of every artist covered in the Lyrics of Their Life podcast so far. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes, or you can now rate the podcast on Spotify. Don't forget to let your friends and family know about what they've been missing out on and feel free to click the free subscribe or follow button to the podcast wherever you listen so you can receive a notification every time a new episode becomes available. If you would like to support the podcast financially then please feel free to head to Patreon or buymeacoffee.com where you can contribute your support for the podcast in exchange for some bonus content ranging from as little as $1 donations to really anything you like. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated, and it means I can continue to bring you more great episodes in the future. This podcast is created and researched completely independently, so your contribution would really help this podcast continue on. This week, I would like to personally thank our latest Patreon supporter, Mehmet, for their support of the podcast. They are now a Backstage Pass VIP member, which gives them access to extra content. Once again, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.